Hey guys, Joshua Wettenkamp back with another episode of Science Fiction Shorts. All by myself this time. Uh, I am going to read a, I'm going to pre-record this one, so um, I'm not going to give live commentary as I read it. I'm actually curious uh, if my listeners like one way over the other. Do you guys kind of like me reading a story for the first time and just kind of commenting on it as I read it? Those are certainly easier for me to record because um, less editing. It's just kind of like, you know, whatever I read and say is what goes in it. Whereas what I'm doing today is like of what I've done before. Um, I'm going to read it as best I can and I'll and I'll make edits uh, to make it sound more like an audiobook. And then, of course, there's a third method with the, a third way that we've done it. And that is with a co-host. Um, so curious what you guys think. Uh, hit me up at wetjosh. W-E-T Josh on Twitter. That's pretty much all I use is Twitter for social networking these days. Also, I it's like my favorite thing in the world to talk about stories that I've read with other people who've read them or listened to the ones that I've recorded. So if you have any commentary, please um, tweet me at WetJosh. I would love to hear what you guys think of the stories. And uh, I mean, any meta information about the podcast would be great, too. Uh, okay, today's story is called The Diamond Lens, which you already knew because you looked at the podcast title. It is by Fitz James O'Brien. I have nothing, I know nothing about this guy. I'm guessing he's Irish based on his name. I don't know. Is that Scottish? I think that's an Irish name, O'Brien. Uh, and the other thing I know about him is he was born in 1828 and died in 1862, unfortunately. Hey, is that like, was that the Civil War? Did he die in the Civil War? Okay, I have to look that up. I know we already looked this up for another episode we did, but, um, Civil War, 61 to 65. What did I say? He died in 62. I mean, look, it could have been coincidence, but that's a young death. That's only 34 years old. Hmm. Anyway, maybe I'll look him up uh, later. Anyway, um, what was I going to say? It's called The Diamond Lens. Oh, and uh, I have already recorded the first half of this podcast, so I can already warn you. I didn't know this beforehand, but there is some uh, some anti-Semitism in this. Yeah, it's pretty clear. Uh, so, you know, these are not my <laughs> thoughts, um, but it's not super blatant, but it's pretty obvious, too. So anyway, um, sorry about that, but this is the 1800s, and I think, uh, you know, <laughs> sometimes we just get that with these older stories. Anyway, uh, I hope you guys like it. Here we go. From a very early period of my life, the entire bent of my inclinations had been toward microscopic investigations. When I was not more than 10 years old, a distant relative of our family, hoping to astonish my inexperience, constructed a simple microscope for me by drilling in a disc of copper a small hole in which a drop of pure water was sustained by capillary attraction. 
This very primitive apparatus, magnifying some 50 diameters, presented, it is true, only indistinct and imperfect forms, but still sufficiently wonderful to work up my imagination to a preternatural state of excitement. Seeing me so interested in this rude instrument, my cousin explained to me all that he knew about the principles of the microscope, related to me a few of the wonders which had been accomplished through its agency, and ended by promising to send me one regularly constructed immediately on his return to the city. I counted the days, the hours, the minutes that intervened between that promise and his departure. Meantime, I was not idle. Every transparent substance that bore the remotest resemblance to a lens I eagerly seized upon, and employed in vain attempts to realize that instrument the theory of whose construction I as yet only vaguely comprehended. All panes of glass containing those oblate spheroidal knots familiarly known as bullseyes were ruthlessly destroyed in the hope of obtaining lenses of marvelous power. I even went so far as to extract the crystalline humor from the eyes of fishes and animals, and endeavored to press it into the microscopic service. I pled guilty to having stolen the glasses from my Aunt Agatha's spectacles, with a dim idea of grinding them into lenses of wondrous magnifying properties, in which attempt it is scarcely necessary to say that I totally failed. At last the promised instrument came. It was of that order known as Field's Simple Microscope, and it cost perhaps about $15. As far as educational purposes went, a better apparatus could not have been selected. Accompanying it was a small treatise on the microscope, its history, uses, and discoveries. I comprehended then for the first time the Arabian Nights Entertainments. The dull veil of ordinary existence that hung across the world seemed suddenly to roll away and to lay bare a land of enchantments. I felt toward my companions as the seer might feel toward the ordinary masses of men. I held conversations with nature in a tongue which they could not understand. I was in daily communication with the living wonders such as they never imagined in their wildest visions. I penetrated beyond the external portal of things and roamed through the sanctuaries. Where they beheld only a drop of rain slowly rolling down the window glass, I saw a universe of beings animated with all the passions common to physical life and convulsing their minute sphere with struggles as fierce and protracted as those of men. In the common spots of mold, which my mother good housekeeper that she was, fiercely scooped away from her jam pots, there abode for me, under the name of mildew, enchanted gardens, filled with dells and avenues of the deepest foliage and most astonishing verdure, while from the fantastic boughs of these microscopic forests hung strange fruits glittering with green and silver and gold. It was no scientific thirst that at this time filled my mind. It was the pure enjoyment of a poet to whom a world of wonders has been disclosed. I talked of my solitary pleasures to none. Alone with my microscope, I dimmed my sight day after day and night after night, poring over the marvels which it unfolded to me. 
I was like one who, having discovered the ancient Eden, still existed in all its primitive glory, should resolve to enjoy it in solitude, and never betray to mortal the secret of its locality. The rod of my life was bent at this moment. I destined myself to be a microscopist. Of course, like every novice, I fancied myself a discoverer. I was ignorant at that time of the thousands of acute intellects engaged in the same pursuit as myself, and with the advantage of instruments a thousand times more powerful than mine. The names of Lewanek, Williamson, Spencer, Ergenberg, Schultz, Dujardin, Sacht, and Schlieden were an entirely unknown to me, or, if known, I was ignorant of their patient and wonderful researches. In every fresh specimen of cryptogamia which I placed beneath my instrument, I believed that I discovered wonders of which the world was as yet ignorant. I remember well the thrill of delight and admiration that shot through me the first time that I discovered the common wheel animacule, Rotifera vulgaris, expanding and contracting its flexible spokes and seemingly rotating through the water. Alas, as I grew older and obtained some works treating of my favorite study, I found that I was only on the threshold of a science to the investigation of which some of the greatest men of the age were devoting their lives and intellects. As I grew up, my parents, who saw but little likelihood of anything practical resulting from the examination of bits of moss and drops of water through a brass tube and a piece of glass, were anxious that I should choose a profession. It was their desire that I should enter the counting house of my uncle, Ethan Blake, a prosperous merchant who carried on business in New York. This suggestion I decisively combated. I had no taste for trade. I should only make a failure. In short, I refused to become a merchant. But it was necessary for me to select some pursuit. My parents were staid New England people, who insisted on the necessity of labor, and therefore, although thanks to the bequest of my poor Aunt Agatha, I should, on coming of age, inherit a small fortune sufficient to place me above want, it was decided that, instead of waiting for this, I should act the nobler part and employ the intervening years in rendering myself independent. After much cogitation, I complied with the wishes of my family and selected a profession. I determined to study medicine at the New York Academy. This disposition of my future suited me. A removal from my relatives would enable me to dispose of my time as I pleased without fear of detection. As long as I paid my academy fees, I might shirk attending the lectures if I chose, and, as I never had the remotest intention of standing an examination, there was no danger of my being plucked. Besides, a metropolis was the place for me. There I could obtain excellent instruments, the newest publications, intimacy with men of pursuits kindred with my own. In short, all things necessary to ensure a profitable devotion of my life to my beloved science. I had an abundance of money, few desires that were not bounded by my illuminating mirror on one side and my object glass on the other. What, therefore, was to prevent my becoming an illustrious investigator of the veiled worlds? It was with the most buoyant hope that I left my New England home and established myself in New York.
My first step, of course, was to find suitable apartments. These I obtained after a couple of days' search in 4th Avenue. A very pretty second floor, unfurnished, containing sitting room, bedroom, and a smaller apartment which I intended to fit up as a laboratory. I furnished my lodging simply, but rather elegantly, and then devoted all my energies to the adornment of my temple of worship. I visited Pike, the celebrated optician, and passed in review his splendid collection of microscopes. Fields compound, Hingham's, Spencer's, Natchett's, binocular, that founded on the principles of the stereoscope, and at length fixed upon that form known as Spencer's Trunian microscope, as combining the greatest number of improvements with an almost perfect freedom form tremor. Along with this, I purchased every possible accessory, draw tubes, micrometers, a camera lucida, lever stage, achromatic condensers, white cloud illuminators, prisms, parabolic condensers, polarizing apparatus, forceps, aquatic boxes, fishing tubes, with a host of other articles, all of which would have been useful in the hands of an experienced microscopist. But, as I afterward discovered, were not of the slightest present value to me. It takes years of practice to know how to use a complicated microscope. The optician looked suspiciously at me as I made these valuable purchases. He evidently was uncertain whether to set me down as some scientific celebrity or a madman. I think he was inclined to the latter belief. I suppose I was mad. Every great genius is mad upon the subject in which he is the greatest. The unsuccessful madman is disgraced and called a lunatic. Mad or not, I set myself to work with a zeal which few scientific students have ever equaled. I had everything to learn relative to the delicate study upon which I had embarked, a study involving the most earnest patience, the most rigid analytic powers, the steadiest hand, the most untiring eye, the most refined and subtle manipulation. For a long time, half my apparatus lay inactively on the shelves of my laboratory, which was now most amply furnished with every possible contrivance for facilitating my investigations. The fact was that I did not know how to use some of my scientific implements, never having been taught microscopies. And those whose use I understood theoretically were of little avail until by practice I could attain the necessary delicacy of handling. Still, such was the fury of my ambition, such the untiring perseverance of my experiments, that difficult of credit as it may be, in the course of one year, I became theoretically and practically an accomplished microscopist. During this year of my labors, in which I submitted specimens of every substance that came under my observation to the action of my lenses, I became a discoverer. In a small way, it is true, for I was very young, but still a discoverer. It was I who destroyed Enrenberg's theory that the Volvox globator was an animal and proved that his monads, with stomachs and eyes, were merely phases of the formation of a vegetable cell, and were, when they reached their mature state, incapable of the act of conjugation, or any true generative act, without which no organism rising to any stage of life higher than vegetable can be said to be complete. 
It was I who resolved the singular problem of rotation in the cells and hairs of plants into ciliary attraction. In spite of the assertions of Wainham and others that my explanation was the result of an optical illusion. But notwithstanding these discoveries, laboriously and painfully made as they were, I felt horribly dissatisfied. At every step, I found myself stopped by the imperfections of my instruments. Like all active microscopists, I gave my imagination full play. Indeed, it is a common complaint against many such that they supply the defects of their instruments with the creations of their brains. I imagined depths beyond depths in nature, which the limited power of my lenses prohibited me from exploring. I lay awake at night constructing imaginary microscopes of immeasurable power, with which I seemed to pierce through all the envelopes of matter down to its original atom. How I cursed those imperfect mediums which necessity through ignorance compelled me to use. How I longed to discover the secret of some perfect lens whose magnifying power should be limited only by the resolvability of the object and which at the same time should be free from spherical and chromatic aberrations. In short, from all the obstacles over which the poor microscopist finds himself continually stumbling. I felt convinced that the simple microscope, composed of a single lens of such vast yet imperfect power, was possible of construction. To attempt to bring the compound microscope up to such a pitch would have been commencing at the wrong end. This latter being simply a partially successful endeavor to remedy those very defects of the simplest instrument which, if conquered, would leave nothing to be desired. It was in this mood of mind that I became a constructive microscopist. After another year passed in this new pursuit, experimenting on every imaginable substance, glass, gems, flints, crystals, artificial crystals formed of the alloy of various vitreous materials. In short, having constructed as many variety of lenses as Argus had eyes, I found myself precisely where I had started, with nothing gained save an extensive knowledge of glassmaking. I was almost dead with despair, my parents were surprised at my apparent want of progress in my medical studies. I had not attended one lecture since my arrival in the city, and my expenses of my mad pursuit had been so great as to embarrass me very seriously. I was in this frame of mind one day, experimenting in my laboratory on a small diamond. That stone, from its great refracting power, having always occupied my attention more than any other, when a young Frenchman who lived on the floor above me, and who was in the habit of occasionally visiting me, entered the room. I think that Jules Simon was a Jew. He had many traits of the Hebrew character, a love of jewelry, of dress, and of good living. There was something mysterious about him. He always had something to sell, and yet went into excellent society. When I say sell, I should perhaps have said peddle for his operations were generally confined to the disposal of single articles. A picture, for instance, or a rare carving in ivory, or a pair of dueling pistols, or the dress of a Mexican caballero. When I was first furnishing my rooms, he paid me a visit, 
which ended in my purchasing an antique silver lamp, which he assured me was a Cellini. It was handsome enough even for that. And some other knickknacks for my sitting room. Why Simon should pursue this petty trade, I never could imagine. He apparently had plenty of money and had the entree of the best houses in the city, taking care, however, I suppose, to drive no bargains within the enchanted circle of the upper ten. I came at length to the conclusion that this peddling was but a mask to cover some greater object, and even went so far as to believe my young acquaintance to be implicated in the slave trade. That, however, was none of my affair. On the present occasion, Simon entered my room in a state of considerable excitement. Ah, mon ami, he cried, before I could even offer him the ordinary salutation. It has occurred to me to be the witness of the most astonishing things in the world. I promenade myself to the house of Madame... How does the little animal, Le Renard, name himself in the Latin? Vulpes, I answered. Ah, yes, Vulpes. I promenade myself to the house of Madame Vulpes. The spirit medium? Yes, the great medium. Great heavens, what a woman. I write on a slip of paper many questions concerning affairs of the most secret. Affairs that conceal themselves in the abysses of my heart the most profound. And behold, by example, what occurs? This devil of a woman makes me reprise the most truthful to all of them. She talks to me of things that I do not love to talk to myself. What am I to think? I am fixed to the earth. Am I to understand you, M. Simon, that this Miss Volpes replied to questions secretly written by you, which contains questions, which questions related to events known only to yourself? Ah, more than that, more than that, he answered, with an air of some alarm. She related to me things, but, he added after a pause and suddenly changing his manner, why occupy ourselves with the follies? It was all the biology, without doubt. It goes without saying that it was not my credence. But why are we here, mon ami? It has occurred to me to discover the most beautiful thing as you can imagine. A vase with green lizards on it, composed by the great Bernard Palissy. It is in my apartment. Let us mount. I go to show it to you. Two evenings after this, thanks to an arrangement by letter and the promise of an ample fee, I found Madame Vulpes awaiting me at her residence alone. She was a coarse-featured woman with keen and rather cruel dark eyes and an exceedingly sensual expression about her mouth and under jaw. She received me in perfect silence in an apartment on the ground floor very sparsely furnished. In the center of the room, close to where Mrs. Volpes sat, there was a common round mahogany table. If I had come for the purpose of sweeping her chimney, the woman could not have looked more indifferent to my appearance. There was no attempt to inspire the visitor with awe. Everything bore a simple and practical aspect. This intercourse with the spiritual world was evidently as familiar an occupation with Mrs. Volpes as eating her dinner or riding on an omnibus. You've come for a communication, Mr. Lindley, said the medium in a dry, business-like tone of voice. By appointment, yes. 
What sort of communication do you want? A written one? Yes, I wish for a written one. From any particular spirit? Yes. Have you ever known this spirit on this earth? Never. He died long before I was born. I wish merely to obtain from him some information which he ought to be able to give better than any other. Will you seat yourself at the table, Mr. Lindley? said the medium, and place your hands upon it. I obeyed, Mrs. Volpe's being seated opposite to me, with her hands also on the table. We remained thus for about a minute and a half, when a violent succession of raps came on the table, and on the back of my chair, on the floor immediately under my feet, and even on the window panes. Mrs. Volpe smiled composedly. They are very strong tonight, she remarked. You are fortunate. Then she continued, Will the spirits communicate with this gentleman? Vigorous affirmative. Will the particular spirit he desires to speak with communicate? A very confused rapping followed this question. I know what they mean, said Miss Volpes, addressing herself to me. They wish you to write down the name of the particular spirit that you desire to converse with. Is that so? She added, speaking to her invisible guests. That it was so evident from the numerous affirmatory responses. While this was going on, I tore a slip from my pocketbook and scribbled a name under the table. Will this spirit communicate in writing with this gentleman? Asked the medium once more. After a moment's pause, her hand seemed to be seized with a violent tremor, shaking so forcibly that the table vibrated. She said that a spirit had seized her hand and would write. I handed her some sheets of paper that were on the table and a pencil. The latter she held loosely in her hand, which presently began to move over the paper with a singular and seemingly involuntary motion. After a few moments had elapsed, she handed me the paper on which I found written, in a large, uncultivated hand, the words, He is not here, but he has been sent for. A pause of a minute or so ensued, during which Mrs. Volpes remained perfectly silent, but the raps continued at regular intervals. When the short period I mentioned had elapsed, the hand of the medium was again seized with its convulsive tremor, and she wrote, under this strange influence, a few words on the paper, which she handed to me. They were as follows. I am here. Question me. Luminoke. I was astounded. The name was identical with that I had written beneath the table and carefully kept concealed. Neither was it at all probable that an uncultivated woman like Mrs. Volpes should have known even the name of the great father of microscopies. It may have been biology, but this theory was soon doomed to be destroyed. I wrote on my slip, still concealing it from Mrs. Volpes, a series of questions which, to avoid tediousness, I shall place with the responses in the order in which they occurred. I. Can the microscope be brought to perfection? Spirit. Yes. I. Am I destined to accomplish this great task? Spirit. 
you are. I. I wish to know how to proceed to attain this end. For the love which you bear to science, please help me. Spirit. A diamond of 140 carats submitted to the electromagnetic currents for a long period will experience a rearrangement of its atoms inter se, and from that stone you will form the universal lens. I. Will great discoveries result from the use of such a lens? Spirit. So great that all that has gone before is as nothing. I. But the refractive power of the diamond is so immense that the image will be formed within the lens. How is that difficulty to be surmounted? Spirit. Pierce the lens through the axis, and the difficulty is obviated. The image will be formed in the pierced space, which will itself serve as a tube to look through. Now I am called. Good night. I cannot at all describe the effect that these extraordinary communications had upon me. I felt completely bewildered. No biological theory could account for the discovery of the lens. The medium might, by means of biological rapport with my mind, have gone so far as to read my questions and reply to them coherently. But biology could not enable her to discover that magnetic currents would so alter the crystals of the diamond as to remedy its previous defects and admit of its being polished into a perfect lens. Some such theory may have passed through my head, it is true, but if so, I had forgotten it. In my excited condition of mind, there was no course left but to become a convert, and it was in a state of the most painful nervous exaltation that I left the medium's house that evening. She accompanied me to the door, hoping that I was satisfied. The raps followed us as we went through the hall, sounding on the balusters, the flooring, and even the lintels of the floor. I hastily expressed my satisfaction and escaped hurriedly into the cool night air. I walked home, but one thought possessing me. How to obtain a diamond of the immense size required? My entire means multiplied a hundred times over, would have been inadequate to its purchase. Besides, such stones are rare and become historical. I could find such only in the regalia of Eastern or European monarchs. Well, there we have it. Uh, this dude's going to make a microscope from a diamond. What was it? A diamond that weighed 140 carats. I don't know how much a carat is, but that's a big diamond, I guess. Um, and I guess he's saying that there would be reflections in the diamond, like that, like maybe people had tried this before, but there's reflections, which make it not possible to use as a microscope lens. So he's going to cut a hole down the diamond. Now that alone is going to like ruin the diamond probably, you know? I mean, <laughs> he's going all out. All or nothing really. Oh, and he also has to um, subject it to electromagnetic currents for a long period, the spirit says. 
not a specific amount of time, just a long period. And it will experience a rearrangement of its atoms. Pretty cool. And I guess this is this、uh, microscope would not suffer from the spherical、uh, and chromatic aberrations that, you know, all his other telescopes he mentioned suffered from.、Um, I don't. Do a lot of microscopy, but I am big into telescopristy. I don't know if there's a word for that, <laughs> but、uh, I do like telescopes and I know a little bit about them. I will say this that,、um, okay, so spherical aberrations would mean that it,、uh, like a, a, a warping of the picture, and chromatic aberrations. Would mean、um, color separation, right? And、um, those are things. Well, the chromatic aberration is something that I believe I'm correct in saying this that only refractor telescopes, or and in this case, microscopes,、um, suffer from. If you use glass, that can happen. If you use a mirror, on the other hand, a reflector telescope, for example,、uh, I don't. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying that you don't have any、um, color separation, any chromatic aberration to worry about. You have other downsides using a mirror.、Um, there's pros and cons to either, either、um, method. But that makes me wonder why. I mean, maybe there are, but I've never seen a microscope, a reflector microscope. Why don't they use mirrors? I mean, they use one mirror, you know, an angled mirror to.、Um, Make it easy to look at through the eyepieces. But I mean, think about that. I don't think they make mirror microscopes. And the biggest telescopes these days are all mirror reflector telescopes. So I wonder why. Actually, okay. Well, now I'm thinking what are the best microscopes? And they're probably electron, electron microscopes, right? So maybe they just bypassed mirrors altogether and went straight to, to electron microscopes. And I have no idea how those work. Anyway, all very interesting. I got to say, I did not see the, uh, the, uh, the medium coming. Did not see that coming. That got pretty freaky. Also,、uh, sorry for the kind of.、Um, Racist remarks toward the Jew. <laughs> also, did not see that coming. <laughs>、um, lots of stereotypes in here. But, you know, I actually don't know when this was written.、Um, so far, I, hopefully, I will have found that out、um, when I finish recording, and maybe I will have said it at the beginning. But as of right now, I don't know. Oh, wait, but I do know that he was alive. In the 1800s. I know he didn't make it out of the 1800s. So, this is, you know, different times. You know, we always、uh, deal with some of this, some of these unpleasantries reading、um, old stories. But anyway, so far, I'm enjoying this story.、Um, did you guys enjoy my French accent? <laughs> oh, man. You know, I recorded that twice actually, once without, and then I thought it's kind of hard to distinguish、um, one person from the other. So, again, kind of like the episode, what was it, the 
the spaceship the spaceship brain episode that I recorded. I can't remember the name of that one. Um, I decided to do an accent and I apologize in advance to any French listeners because it was absolutely horrible. Uh, hopefully this gentleman doesn't come back in the next part because I will have to do it again. Once I've started doing voices, I can't stop. Okay. Anyway, hope you enjoyed it. We'll read the next part. I think this is going to be a two-parter. We'll read the next part next time. Oh, and don't forget to hit me up on Twitter, wetjosh uh, on Twitter. I really would like to know what you guys think of this episode in particular or any other episode that you've listened to if you'd like. Like I've said before, talking about books I've read with other people who have read them is literally one of my favorite things ever.